What's going on, everyone? And thank you for listening to the Self-Disruption Podcast, where we give you the tools and insights to improve your lifelong learning, leadership, and innovation with the top minds in their fields today. Brought to you by SEAC, a global leader in lifelong learning and innovation. Check them out at seasiacenter.com. I've got all of their details for you down in the show notes. I'm your host, Dana Bloon, and this episode is part one of the full interview with Michael Ventura, the CEO of Subrosa and the author of the book Applied Empathy, The New Language of Leadership. You guys have asked for this full episode to be released, so here it is. Without further ado, sit back, relax, and let's get right into it. Michael, thank you for joining me today, man. Thank you for having me. This is really great. The new book, Applied Empathy, The New Language of Leadership. Talk to me about that right away, because that's what we're here, we're here to talk about. So. Yeah. So it's been a long work uh, in the making, really. Yeah. For us, it's been important to think about as a business. You know, I started Sub Rosa 15 years ago, and the business has really grown and evolved over time. And it was time for us to really commit to something, to really say, mm-hmm. this is a thing we can put a flag in the ground and, and say, this is what we stand for as Sub Rosa. Mm-hmm. This is the, the type of work we do for our clients, and this is where we want to be successful. And so it was just sort of time to write a book. I mean, it's kind of a funny thing to say, but when I when I talked with my colleagues about this idea, I said, writing a book is as much for us as it is for the world around us. Because everyone thinks you write a book for everyone, right? Yeah. You write a book to put into the business world. But for us, it was also about acknowledging internally the work, the good work we had been doing, but had never really documented in such a formal process. And so the book was, a, was an effort to do that. So how... What's the background on this, the methodology in the book? Yeah. What, go, what goes into it? So we started creating it based on about a 40-minute talk that we had written. So when we, said, when we came to this idea that empathy was really going to be a valuable tool in design thinking and problem mm-hmm. solving, we started to interrogate that and we started to say, okay, so what are some of the processes we might come up with in order to do that? What are some things we're already doing that we could kind of package and tighten up a bit more and make make uh, replicable and shareable. Yeah. And so we made a 40 minute presentation and I just kind of went out and started talking to some organizations about it and got invited randomly to come speak at Princeton University and give it there mm. and uh, got on stage and gave the 40 minute and came off stage and the dean of the school was standing there and she said, uh, the dean of the uh, engineering school. And she said, I love what you had to say. We run engineering, computer science, and, and uh, entrepreneurship out of this school. Mm. And we'd love to have a design thinking course centered around empathy. Would you guys create the curriculum and teach it? And my colleagues and I looked at each other and we said, well, we've got this 40-minute thing. And we've got these frameworks that we've been using for a long time. This is going to force us to have to really create something deeper because it's a 12-week class, you know, five hours a week. Um, we're going to have to really learn this in a way we've never learned it before. This is a great exercise for us. So we went in to do that. And so the methodology really follows a, uh, a process from going wide yeah. and exploring to then pulling that information internally and using it as a, a that, that width and that data to start to help solve problems in a very ecosystemic, inclusive way, you know, sort of taking all those inputs at hand and then making sure that the solution you create is implementable based on your own organization's needs and culture and capability. Now, as an engineer myself, I would have never thought that 
empathy was something that I would have included in my design process or mm-hmm. my problem-solving process. It's turned out to be one of the most important things <laughs> that I've learned. But one of the, what I want to touch on with that is I never understood what empathy was until I learned about it. I always thought empathy was being placid, you know, being sort of a pushover, not something that I viewed as important to business. I was completely wrong. Mm. And you describe it in the book. And if you could kind of give that breakdown, I, I would yeah, appreciate sure. it. Sure. Uh, it's a wrap that I love giving because it, it, it does it debunks what I want to debunk by yeah. having written this book. Empathy is not about being nice. It's not about sympathy. It's not about compassion. If those are side effects of empathy, uh, great, mm. right? Maybe maybe the, the world would not uh, hurt from more sympathy, compassion, or niceness. Probably not. But, but it, is, uh, it is not what empathy is. Empathy unto itself is the bias-free perspective-taking of another in order to gain richer, deeper understanding, mm. right? And is it easy to do bias-free? No, we all have our own biases, conscious and unconscious, that we have to become aware of over time. And empathy for yourself can help you do that. It can help you understand, I'm, you know, I'm too much of an optimist and I don't ever see the dark side of something. And so I often get, you know, tripped up by that. Or I am uh, too much of a pessimist and don't motivate myself enough because I feel like nothing's solvable. Or like, you know, I'm making these up, but it could go in a million different directions. The, The important thing for me is that you become aware of them enough that you can try to be as objective as possible in gathering this understanding because with that deep understanding of another person or persons or groups or competitors or whatever it is, you're able to pull that into the process and design differently. And to your point about being an engineer, you know, user experience design is essentially designing with empathy, right? It is, you, you must think about the user to such a degree that you're designing the, the most elegant journey for them to get from A to B. And that's part of why it ended up in the engineering school because the engineering school, you know, 25 years ago, students who were going to that school were coming out ready to go, uh, you know, work as a mechanical engineer yeah. or a product developer. Now all of those students are coming out wanting to develop the next great app. Right. And sell it to Facebook and cash out at 26. And so (laughs) we all wish. Yeah, exactly. And so um, what they realized is that's why entrepreneurship sits in there, too, because they were churning out so many CI uh, and uh, CS majors, rather computer science majors who um, didn't have enough of an aptitude to bring that into the business world. So by merging those two programs, they were actually able to create something that was building better entrepreneurs and better apps and products. Now, when I, when I think about UX and UI today, though, one of the big things that, that I notice is that it does get applied in not just app and software, but product design, yeah. cars. I mean, it, it, it's perforated everything. Yeah, because the, you know, the, the, the digital, um, what's a good way of putting this, kind of the digital underpinnings of every product mm-hmm. have uh, become ubiquitous, right? Like yeah. your, your, your car's interface is is an interface. It used to be dials and switches, right? But well, now, even then, it was is an interface. It was just analog. Yes, it was right? an analog interface. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so all of those things really have the more empathy that gets put into them, mm. the better the user experience is. One of the things I love about the book, and it it's different than anything else I've seen on empathy from a business or a decision making perspective, even a design thinking perspective. Your book is application ready. Mm-hmm. So you read the book and you come away with tools. 
Was, was that the goal going into it, or did, did that kind of come to fruition as you were going through that design process at Princeton? So it's, it's funny, and you have to give credit where credit is due. When I started writing the book, my publisher at Simon & Schuster and I sat down and we went through the outline, mm. and he said, this is great. I totally get it. I love the theory meets the case studies and it all comes together. There's one thing you need to add. He said, at the end of every chapter, you need to add exercises. <laughs> and, and I was initially kind of resistant, not because it wasn't uh, something that we had already thought about, but because it just seemed uh, perhaps a little too on the nose. Mm -hmm. And we were like, well, why are we going to prescribe exercises at the end of every chapter? There's very few business books that sort of make it that rigorous mm. but he had a really good point he said empathy needs that sort of rigor otherwise people are going to read this and forget about it and so you need to give people something to do and he was absolutely right and i give him a lot of credit for pushing me on that because what we discovered is the repetition and the practicing of it is where the rubber meets the road, right? Mm -hmm. I don't think we could have called it applied empathy if it didn't have the exercises. Yeah, It's a way to really embody it. Yeah, it you talk about repetition, and, and one of the things that we talk to a lot of people on the show is about mastery. So I, I try to get a lot of people on here who are, are masters of skills. Mm -hmm. You know, outside the business world, knife makers, knitters, you know, tapestry makers, people who have mastered a skill in one of the things that comes across always is repetition. Mm. You know, constantly doing. Yeah. And looking at what you did and iterating to improve. I, you couldn't be more on the nose with that. I think that the, 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 the having the mindset mm. of knowing what you need to do in order to be successful is the first step, right? Getting yourself into the right mindset that cues you up for success. The second is the method, and the method mm -hmm. is often about repetition, right? It's, okay, now that I understand this, here's how I'm going to continue to push it and, and make sure we get to the right place. And then the third is mastery, but mastery is not a finish line. It's a, it's a, it's a loop, right? Yeah. So, like, if you ask that knife maker, I guarantee you he would say that there's still more to learn. Oh, for sure, and they, they all do. They're, they're talking about where they've got to go for the next phase, what, what's next for them. Yep. You know, how they're learning something new every time. And they work with other knife makers or they work with other embroiderers and they come up with some, some new task, some yeah. new skill. There's a, there's a great book uh, called The Craftsman by Richard Sennett. And he talks about how uh, in the medieval era mm. of guilds and things like that, there the were... The good old days. Yeah, the good old <laughs> days. Um, there were... There were uh, you, you started your path in a guild as an apprentice. Mm -hmm. And then there was a critical phase called the journeyman phase, yeah. which was, okay, now that you've got enough skills to be dangerous, leave yeah. and go to other villages and meet other craftspeople and learn how they do it and pick up what you like mm -hmm. and ignore what you don't. But like go and explore and experiment and gather information. And that to me is like the empathy stage, right? It's mm -hmm. the ability to like kind of go out and absorb and see what works well for you. Mm -hmm. And then the third step is set up your own shop and, and begin the process of, of becoming a master. Yeah. And that, that arc is still true today. I mean, we're still doing that exact same thing. We're not you know, necess necessarily like you know, putting uh, 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 horseshoes on horses anymore mm -hmm. with it, but that, that act is still very much part of how we learn. I think we've gotten away from that methodology in the fact that we don't see it as apprenticeship, journeyman, and mastery today in the business world or in the engineering world where I think we almost need to. Yeah, 
I, yeah, I think there's people have had because of some quick wins and quick successes yeah. in the that get a lot of light in the public eye. I think some people have tried to leapfrog to, to mastery prematurely. Yeah. You know, and I, I talk to a lot of entrepreneurs. I come from the startup world, and I was having a conversation the other day, and this person was like, "Look." It's easy to be an entrepreneur. You just go online, you set up a shop on Amazon or, or uh, Shopee or whatever, and you're you're an entrepreneur. I was like, that's not entrepreneurship. No. No, that that's using someone's platform to sell something. It's a great first step to learn about market and sales and all these things, but that's not being an entrepreneur. And, and they argued me to death on this, <laughs> that that's a business, and then... You know, the, but it, it got into this whole conversation about the skill set you need. And, you know, talking, I was at the time discussing the value of education um, versus the debt that people acquire, especially mm-hmm. in the U.S. For, for education. It's insane. Yeah. I, I'm, one, I'm fortunate um, at my age, I came out of university with no debt, you know, multiple degrees. I was very fortunate. Not everyone's there. Right. But the, one of the things I hate, this kind of preconceived notion that you talk about these early wins, everyone's like, well, look at you know, Mark Zuckerberg, right. Steve Jobs, Bill Gates. They have no degrees, and look how successful they were. You know, it means nothing. I'm like, well, it doesn't mean nothing. You're discounting the Mark Cubans, the Warren Buffetts, the Michael Dells, the Elon Musks, the Sergey Brins that all have multiple degrees, and they're built on something. Yep. Right? You can't leapfrog certain steps of the continuum or certain steps right. of the journey. Yeah, and and it's it's you know it's not surprising to me that there are only three or four that you could name that have done that. Yeah. Like it's a, and 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 everyone names the same three or four people, right? Yeah. Of, of course, because they are the exception. They're the to outlier. The, yeah, exactly. That's yeah. not the way most people get there. Most yeah. people get there taking a different path. And you know, I think one of the things that I've come to find in being an entrepreneur, and, and I've got three businesses that uh, that I run simultaneously essentially mm. is that at least for me even though the 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 business that it, each of them are 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 inherently different one's a retail business one's a sub rosa so we're obviously doing professional services consulting and then the third is an alternative medicine practice right oh. now on the surface those look like completely different things but i would think they're nothing alike However, I have come to find uh, that actually I'm doing the same job in all three. I am getting out of myself enough to perspective take and understand the needs of someone else mm-hmm. and to offer a solution. The solution's totally different, right? On one side, it's going to be consultative and business-based. Another, it's going to be um, based on a, an indigenous form from Mexico that actually uses body work and an egg and smoke and other things to an kind egg, of help. Huh? Yeah, and an egg. <laughs> um, and then the third is uh, by uh, importing and presenting products in a way that ultimately will help make your house more like a home, Mm. right? So like those are the problems I'm solving. They're very different problems. Might be low back, might be a dysfunctional corporate culture, and it might be like a corner of your room that's too dark and you need a lamp for it. (laughs) But, But at the end of the day, like I have gotten, I think, one really versatile skill that I've applied in a variety of different channels. So you think that empathy applies the same way across all of those? I do. I really I, like to me, if you come in and tell me that you have low back issue or you're trying to get pregnant or whatever it is, or if you come in, if I come in and tell you I'm trying to get pregnant. <laughs> you probably tell me I'm crazy. <laughs> well, you had a partner. Um, if, uh, if, if you come in and say our corporate cultures 
uh, not effective or we need a uh, we need a better product development pipeline or something like that. Mm. You know, at the end of the day, it's the same raw skills I'm using. I'm listening. I'm helping think through scenarios. Mm -hmm. I'm looking for root causes. I'm helping address that root cause and set you up to mend yourself. Right. I think that's that's the thing. Like people people don't realize that a consultant's best job huh. is the creation of their own obsolescence. And if I can go into an organization and do it really well, do this consulting work really well, you shouldn't need us for this problem anymore. There are plenty of problems inside corporations that, that pop up and we, you know, we don't lose clients when we solve problems. Mm. Well, let's talk about that for a minute because from, from a business perspective, when I think about the, the business model, yep. You're talking about creating obsolescence for yourself. Around a particular problem. Around a particular issue. Uh, how do you develop your... your annuity your, business. Yeah, your annuity business. How do you develop growth and sustain when you're making yourself obsolete for certain problems? So large, complex organizations have no shortage of problems. That, that is a true <laughs> statement. <laughs> so what, what we're actually doing is by solving something, we're building trust, we're building partnership. We're building uh, a relationship that stands the test of time beyond that solution in that moment. So, I mean, I have some clients that I've been working with for a decade. We've worked on 20 projects together. Mm. Um, every one of them have been different, and they've all been the problem du jour, right, mm. that, ha that is happening at the organization that needs some support or needs something fixed or needs something evolved. But I have some clients that I've worked with across three different organizations, like the, I've worked with them here and then they've decided to make a move somewhere else and they call and they say, hey, now I'm over here. I need the same help. So our business is really built on the recurring revenue of our relationships, not our uh, repetition of the same solution. So you build that that trust mm -hmm. and you, you build the reputation of being able to solve a problem and they come back to you. Yeah. Now, how often... Before you came to the, the methodology of empathy, how often was the same, this methodology implemented across, the, across different pro problems? It was, however, because it was not as formally articulated, mm -hmm. it, it made it more opaque for the client, and yeah. they had a hard time understanding the, uh, the true value, I think, that we were bringing to the organization. In the creation of this book and this methodology five years ago, the book is not five years old, the book's only a few months old, but the methodology's been in sort of place for about five years. Yeah. What clients have come to know is now it's packaged, it's productized, right? It's, mm -hmm. you know, it's all the things good marketers want. We can, we can sit down and in a half an hour, I can give you a really clear explanation of what we do and how we do it so that you know you can come back to us time and again for that and mm -hmm. we will help you work through stuff. And that builds that builds a client base that returns. And That's right. Yeah, I would say, on a given year, we may only do one piece of work for a client. It may be six months long. It may be eight months long. It might be three weeks long, right? But we have in our Rolodex of clients at any given time probably twelve to fifteen active projects running through the business, and close to two or three hundred relationships in 
these organizations that you're maintaining that we're maintaining. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, and sometimes it's as simple as going to have a coffee with a client and talking out a problem and you don't send them a bill for that. You just sort of maintain the relationship because in four months from now, some crazy thing happens and they call. And this literally happened last week before I came out here. Phone rang on a Wednesday from a client at a big tech firm. And she said, hey, we've got a huge problem. We need to solve it in three weeks. Um, and you know, you're the only guys we know who we could call with this sort of thing because you know us and you get us and you're part of our DNA. So can you have a team out in San Francisco in a week? And we said, yeah, sure. No problem. And off we go. And then go time. Yeah. You've been listening to the self-disruption podcast brought to you by SEAC to find amazing resources on lifelong learning leadership and innovation you can check them out at seasiacenter.com as well as their links in the show notes and for more great conversations like this one you can find our archive at selfdisruptionpodcast.com